One Week Season. Circle fam, welcome to the week two classroom session, which I have decided to title How to Take in Information Throughout the Week in such a way that it helps you narrow your player pool instead of expanding your pool and crippling your play. Long title, but something very relevant to pretty much all DFS players. This is certainly one of the things that we hear people ask about, talk about more often than just about any other topic, is this idea that the more information they take in, the broader their player pool gets. So one solution to that, obviously, is cutting down the amount of information you take in, but there is also value to taking in information. If you listened to my guest spot on Blender HD's podcast last last week, he was talking about how he listens to podcasts all week long, and Cubs fan does the same thing. We were talking about that basically the reason they do that is not to take in information, but to understand where the field is likeliest to go. Because it's one thing to see two players projected at 12% ownership. It's another thing to see two players projected at 12% ownership, but one guy you keep hearing talked up on mainstream podcasts. And the other guy you're not really hearing about as much. And so it's kind of like when Zandemir talks about robust projections and fragile projections, there's a level of robustness to when you can understand that this guy's being talked up in the industry. And if anything, his ownership is going to be higher than what's being listed. Whereas the other guy, if anything, his ownership is going to be lower than what's listed. So taking in additional information can be beneficial. It can also be beneficial for helping you to see new angles that you might not have been seeing yourself. And that's kind of what I'm going to get into. But we, there's also obviously an element of taking in that new information and then just keeps adding guys to your player pool, partly because you're scared to miss out on a big game, partly because it's a player you hadn't thought about, partly because you can tend to start second guessing yourself and your own research and so on and so forth. One of the things that's unbelievably helpful in this area is keeping in mind that we're not really trying to predict who's going to have a big game on that particular weekend. We're trying to understand, we can't predict it. We, when we've talked about this, like, okay, look at the Monday night game, right? The ball goes right through Willie Sneed's hands and bounces off his helmet and it gets intercepted. And then the Ravens turn the ball over and then Zay Jones gets this long touchdown. If you rostered Zay Jones in showdown, you're and you're just looking at the end results, you're feeling like you made a good play, but so much had to go right for him to get that touchdown. And that's an extreme example, but all throughout an NFL game, there's tight window throws, there's contested catches, uh, there's toe taps, there's you know interceptions and fumbles and, and barely touchdowns and barely not touchdowns that can happen in all these different random ways. I don't remember which game I was watching, but catching up on all the games from the weekend, there was one game where it ended up being a, a super lopsided game, but there was a really close fourth fourth and one that a team went for early in the game, barely got stopped, and they ended up getting stomped throughout that game. But the difference in the way that that entire game 
could have played out just from them converting that one fourth down, it changes the whole shape of the game because now they're continuing this drive. If I remember correctly, they were already in scoring position or close to scoring position. Maybe they score a touchdown on that drive and everything shifts from there. And so understanding that there's a lot of different ways that a game can play out. And what we're trying to get a sense of is what's likeliest to happen. Who are the best in a vacuum plays based on what's likeliest to happen? And then how do we use that information and, and incorporate that information? Once you start understanding that and adding a lot of nuance to your thoughts with that type of angle to your thinking, you become less concerned about, oh my God, if, if this guy goes off, I was on this guy and if he goes off, I'm going to be so disappointed because I moved off. I'm going to be so frustrated with myself because I moved off of him. Well, you were on that guy because he's a good play. He has a chance to go off. And here's another play that somebody else brought up that has a chance to go off. And realistically, there's going to be times every week, every week throughout the entire season where there's going to be players who you thought about and they had a big game and you didn't roster them. And there's going to be players who you rostered and they didn't have a big game. And that's just the nature of the NFL. And once you understand that, some of that, those crippling elements can be taken away because you start to understand more what you're really trying to do. And we've been so conditioned from season-long content and approaches and EFS content over the years to think that really what we are trying to do is nail the perfect play and get everything right. But even when we get everything right, Oftentimes, I go back to one of the podcasts I did last year with Scott Barrett and Grant Barfield, and I was talking about my roster, and I talked about Julio Jones and why I had him. It wasn't about the matchup. It was about the strategy, and Graham said, yeah, but Julio Jones, like you got lucky to get that game because he ended up scoring his touchdown in this way, and this happened, this happened, and I said, no matter what, if you have a, a tournament winning score from a player, you got lucky. Like certain things have to break your way for a tournament winning score to come from a player. And so once you understand that, you can understand more like you didn't get things wrong if a player who you went all in on had a bad game. You didn't get things right if a player you went all in on had a good game. Things just kind of broke your way that week. As long as the process and research were sound, you're getting good plays. And we're, we're going to keep hammering this throughout this season. And Mike Johnson's going to hop on a little bit later in this segment, uh, but in his course in marketplace about checking the boxes, his, how he builds his player pool, there's this element of you're going to build full rosters of good players. The more time you're spending in these inner circle sessions, the more time you're spending thinking about the stuff and learning about DFS and because good players is ultimately what's going to win tournaments. You don't need to take on, lesser plays, bad plays. Hilo talks about this all the time as well. Taking on lesser plays and calling that leverage, taking on lesser plays and calling that strategy. That's not really how we try to win in DFS. What we're trying to do is find the good plays that we're building around better than our competition is building around them or the good plays that are going overlooked for one reason or another. Uh, one other note I'm going to uh, put on this and then I'm, I'm going to tell you guys a story. And then we'll get into my builds from last week. But uh, the other note I wanted to put on this is uh, Roto Maven and I were having our weekly call today and he was talking about his play from this last week. And he was saying it was the first time that he really fully grasped everything that he's been hearing from us the last couple of years and was really able to put it into action as far as not just thinking about who's going to have a good game, 
but thinking about, and, and not just thinking about correlation at like its basest level, like, okay, so if I'm taking a quarterback, everyone says I should stack him and bring somebody back from the other side. But instead thinking through what does, what story does this roster tell? And what does this roster do that gives me a shot at first place, considering what my competition is going to be doing? And we were talking about that and saying, uh, it's a, that's a lot more fun than trying to pick players and then being upset because the players you picked were wrong. Like it's so much more fun to be playing this game where you recognize you're taking a big picture view, you're understanding what's likely to happen if we play out a slate a hundred times and you're taking good plays based on that, but also arranging the way you're, you're rostering these good plays and putting them together under a roster based on all these strategy elements that we're going to keep talking about. So once you grasp this, like the whole game of DFS becomes a fun game to play. It's no longer, I hope I pick the right players. You know that you're playing a better game than your competition, which leads into this story. So several years ago, I mean, it has been 10 years ago now. Uh, and and let's, let's take a step back and say this. I'm six foot two, six foot two and a half, maybe. Um, I've got a pretty lean build. I'd say I'm about six to 170. Uh, I'd love to be 6'2", 190, with that being muscle weight, but I can't seem to put it on between schedule and just the way that my body is. So 6'2", 170. And Abby and I, my wife and I, were in Kansas City, again, this is maybe eight, ten years ago, going to a Red Sox-Royals game. And I was wearing uh, my Dustin, not my Dustin Pedroia, <laughs> I was just wearing my Red Sox uh, batting practice jersey and jeans and you know a red Sox hat and we were getting some food about an hour and a half before the game and somebody walked up to me this is a true story he walked up to me he was about my age like at the time mid-20s and he tapped me and he looked kind of sheepish and a little bit embarrassed and then I turned around and he said hey sorry to bother you but are you Dustin Pedroia and and I said <laughs> no Dustin Pedroia is five foot nine. Not only that, it's an hour and a half before the game and we're at a restaurant in jeans and a batting practice jersey. Like if you know anything about Dustin Pedroia, he's at the ballpark at five in the morning and he's not getting food in, in jeans and a batting practice jersey an hour and a half before the game. And what that story illustrates to me is it's good to step outside your own mind a little bit and recognize that not everybody is quite as smart as you might give them credit for. They're not quite as smart as you think they are. And when you hear, you're immersed in OWS. And if you're in Inner Circle, you're probably at a point where this is one of two subscriptions that you have or the only subscription that you have. And so you're in this bubble where we're talking about these deeper strategy elements, a lot of which you might not have thought about before or are still working to grasp. And it can start to feel like you're so far behind the field of players in DFS. You can start to feel like you're not quite where you need to be. And, and maybe you're not quite where you need to be because you're going to keep growing. But when you look at the way most people are playing DFS, if you can kind of step mentally outside of this OWS bubble, and especially this inner circle bubble, you'll recognize that so much of, and I won't throw any names out there, but you guys know who we're talking about. Most of the bigger sites are still 
primarily or only focused on picks. And they might mention stuff like, you know, this quarterback correlates with his wide receiver. They might not even use the word correlation, but they're just thinking of these people. Like I have friends who have friends who play over a grand a weekend in DFS that are playing with their sports knowledge. And so when we talk about who you're competing against for first place, you're competing against Cubs fan and Osimo and guys who know what they're doing with a large number of rosters, but there's still a lot of people putting in one roster, five rosters, 10 rosters, 15 or 20 rosters that have no idea what they're doing. Like a larger percentage of rosters in any given tournament, a larger percentage than the rake. So say the rake is 12% or whatever ridiculous number it's gotten up to. There's still more than 12% of the rosters in any given field that have no idea what they're doing. I would peg it at a good 40 or 50% of rosters in any given field have no idea what they're doing in terms of what actually leads to first place victories. And if they get a first place victory, we've talked about this before, all that's going to do is boost their confidence. They're going to keep playing the same way, go up in buy-in levels and get that money back more quickly. So there's such an edge that you guys are picking up and it's going to start paying off over time. And furthermore, your mindset becomes so much more confident because you know that, okay, it didn't work out this week, but these were the strategy elements that I put into play. This was the thinking behind all of it. Uh, I was thinking through this the other night. So I spent so much time as a single entry DFS player that I really haven't put that many rosters into play throughout my quote DFS career. And this is kind of, you know, back of napkin math, but I was thinking that since starting DFS in 2014, between MLB and NFL, I've probably put in about 2000 rosters total. And I picked up between 12 and 15 first place finishes. Uh, mathematically, that's like one out of every 150 rosters, which is probably an unsustainable rate realistically. But if you think about 2000 rosters and 12 to 15 in first place, that's still a lot of rosters that don't get to first place. And so you have to understand, right, that there's numbers that have to play out. But once you start seeing what you're doing compared to what others are doing, and and I'll kind of wrap this part up with uh, Mike Johnson and I were texting the other night, and he's a buddy of his. uh, If you guys haven't read Mike's reflection piece, it's highly recommended. Uh, Currently, we have it on the featured on the homepage, and you can find it in the Edge Plus dropdown menu. You can find it in the little boxes at the bottom of the homepage. But uh, the reflection piece is in a scroll type edition of uh, that's an early week edition of the scroll that's called reflection and you can find Mike's process points in there and he was breaking down his rosters and and his strategy behind those rosters and one of the rosters he broke down he talked about how uh, I might have some of the details wrong here but I think it was he had an expensive quarterback and he was saying in order for this expensive quarterback to actually win me a tournament I would also optimally need the other expensive quarterbacks to disappoint so or in other words, in order for this, this story that I'm telling on this roster to not only be a, a story that gets me a lot of points, but that also gets me to first place, my likeliest path there is the other people who are taking quarterbacks in this price range disappoint. So this is something I talked about last week as well in the Angles podcast. I believe I, I mentioned it in the player grid. 
mention it in my league week update to the player grid. But basically what Mike did was he took Clyde Edwards-Hilaire because if Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was having a big game, that was taking away points from Patrick Mahomes and from the Patrick Mahomes rosters he was competing against. And then he rostered the Arizona defense because in a game flow scenario where the Arizona defense is having a big game, that's probably taking away points from Kyler Murray, who's another quarterback that he's going to optimally have to beat with his higher priced quarterback. And he said that a buddy of his texted him to say that, you know, he was like, you blew my mind with this Arizona defense uh, example and like why you played it that way. And Mike and I were talking about that. And, and he said, you know, most people don't think about this stuff. Most people don't play that way. And I said, no, not only that, like you're thinking about, you're talking about most people don't think about how your own roster correlates to other people's rosters. Most people don't even think about their own rosters and the story their own roster tells and how their own roster correlates. This is where playing showdowns or the in-game drafts that I talked about last week. If you haven't listened to that, it's on the, we did a, a community stage before the first inner circle last week. And it went up on the one week season podcast stream, the, the free podcast stream. But I broke down the value of the in-game drafts on DraftKings and just the practice it can get you in this type of thinking. Same thing with showdowns of just thinking, how does what story is my roster telling? Not what players are on this roster, but what story is this roster telling? When you're working with one game, it's a lot easier to actually start thinking through that. So most of our competition isn't even thinking through what story their roster is telling, let alone how their the correlations on their own roster connect with the core, like correlate to other people's rosters, the other rosters they're going to have to beat. So that kind of gives you hopefully a, like a confidence boost to recognize like, okay, yeah, maybe I don't have everything right now, but where I'm at right now is miles ahead of the field. Uh, that can, that can basically, I mean, I've talked about this for years, but confidence really is a big part of DFS because if you can't confidently pull the trigger on things, other people aren't doing, you're going to have a really hard time winning tournaments. And so if you're feeling timid in your mind and feeling like this is part of where we talk about DFS being a creative endeavor, if you're feeling timid in your mind, you're not going to be able to pull the trigger on what blender last week called the nutso plays. You're instead going to always regress back to, well, the stats say this and the matchup says this. That stuff is so important and so valuable for helping us to understand things about uh, a matchup. This is where we talk about NFL knowledge being more valuable than just projections alone. Like I was watching the Patriots game, Roto Maven and I were talking about this this morning. I was watching the the Patriots game and Johnny Smith had, I think it was five or six targets. So in the box score, that's what it shows. And air yard is going to show a bunch of short area targets. But if you watch the game, there was a lot of creative usage. There's little slip screens trying to get him the ball in space. He got the ball on a jet sweep. So you see a team that's trying to actively get the ball to this player in creative ways that open him up for big plays. So now you can start saying, yeah, Johnny Smith has an A dot of four yards or whatever it might have been, but he's also being put in position to break off some big plays. So that's where we can say, okay, yeah, NFL knowledge, we don't want to overrate it, but our NFL knowledge gives us an edge over the projection systems if we use it correctly. Uh, and so taking all of that and, and putting it together can really help us to understand where we're gaining our edges on the field and how we're outmaneuvering the field. So I am now going to, and I'm going to try to keep this pretty tight because 
we want to get Mike on to talk about uh, another thing that I posted in the reflection uh, piece this week, which is the scores required for first place builds. Mike and I are going to talk about that for five or 10 minutes. And then uh, obviously we want to get to the Q&A as well. So I'll try to keep this pretty tight, but I want to go through my process from last week in particular. So here's what I did and here's what I do. I had already thought through the games on sort of a basic level of how these two teams are going to try to attack each other. It's, it's kind of interesting for other people. They have more time to prepare for week one because the pricing gets put up so early. Uh, I tend to have less time to prepare for week one because of everything that goes into getting the site up and running for the new year. So I'd already thought through all of the games and kind of jotted down some of my initial thoughts. And then as I read the NFL edge, and put together my interpretations, I pulled players from the games. Now, this is important. I pulled players from the games to have a sense of who the best plays on the slate were, not to decide who I'm playing that week. It's so hard for people to wait until Friday or Saturday or Sunday morning to make those decisions about who they are officially playing. But that should be the process. It should be a process of collecting information, kind of pushing forward on it, getting a sense of what you feel most confident in, what you're less sure about, thinking through all the angles on a specific play, regrouping. Now you have a new pool that's kind of been adjusted, and then you start moving forward again with those pieces. So Colts and Seahawks. I wrote down Paris Campbell, Gerald Everett, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, I ended up playing Paris Campbell on two out of seven rosters, no Everett, no Taylor. Jets and Panthers, I wrote down tighter for my tighter builds uh, to consider a game stack. Zach Wilson, Jamison Crowder, Elijah Moore, Corey Davis, Christian McCaffrey, DJ Moore, and Terrace Marshall with a question mark. 49ers and Lions, I put fringes, Mostert. Uh, I put a note below that that said solid, but guesswork, plus unlikely to post a had-to-have-it score. That's how I was seeing Mostert because he's not super involved in the pass game, and we know that the 49ers like to spread the carries around. So my thought was there is always guesswork with the 49ers backfield just because we never really know where the carries are going. Just look at Trey Sermon being a surprise inactive on Sunday morning. We never really know where the carries are going. So I loved the matchup. I love Mostert's explosiveness, but I also was thinking, okay, well, he cost, I think it was 5,800. And I was thinking, well, what's a had to have it score 5,800? That's 30 plus points. Like if he gets 28, 29, I'm going to be hurt by not having him. But, you know, if he gets 24 points, I'm going to be okay. I felt decently confident that he was going to get to those 24 points. And he probably would have if he hadn't gotten hurt. But my thought was just, okay, this is a solid play, obviously. But there's a little bit more guesswork from what the way I'm seeing it. And if he hits, it's probably not going to bury me. So that, that was the note I left I didn't make a decision that I'm not playing Mostert. I didn't really make that decision until probably Saturday night, but I just left that note for myself to have a full scope of what I was working with there. I also wrote down Kittle, Ayuk, and Debo Samuel. Bills and Steelers, I wrote down tight, Diggs, Deontay, and Najee, and then I wrote down plus game stack. So coming out of that game, that's where I was at. Tennessee and Arizona, I wrote down Kyler, and then in parentheses, I wrote down consider more. So this is just as I'm going through the NFL edge, paying attention to what's coming up in the research, paying attention to how that relates to everything I've already thought through about these games, and then just pulling these into a note. You should have a process 
to where you can kind of keep everything organized when I don't have an infant, six months old, seven months old, an infant, I guess not anymore. But when I don't have um, a baby in my arms at night, uh, I do all of this in a notebook. But two of the last three years, that, that being this year and 2019, I've done all of this in my phone notes or in the notes at the bottom of the NFL Edge game write-ups. Uh, but just having a way to organize this that's consistent from week to week so that you feel comfortable in the way that you're putting together your player pool, your rosters, so on and so forth. Atlanta, Philadelphia, I wrote down Hertz. Uh, I attached Devonte and Quez to Hertz. I wrote down Pitts, Ridley Gage, and Mike Davis. Cincinnati and Minnesota, Dalvin, Jefferson, Thielen, Chase, Mixon, Boyd, and T. Green Bay and New Orleans, I wrote down Camara. Cleveland, Kansas City, I wrote down Kelsey. Now, taking these last two games, notice I ended up playing a lot of Marquez Valdez scaling from Green Bay and New Orleans. I ended up playing uh, a lot of Tyree Kill from Kansas City, or I guess two or three out of seven rosters, Tyree Kill from Kansas City, but those weren't the players that I was pulling out initially. So we're also going to see how those guys end up on my builds. Later in the week, I'm going through this player pool. So this was week one, we get everything up early. So let's say Wednesday, in a normal week, this might be Friday afternoon. I'm going through my player pool and kind of reworking things, rethinking things. That's when I left a note for myself that Mike Davis was underpriced for his role not quite as underpriced as it might seem because of his bad matchup against the Philadelphia run defense. Uh, I wrote down that James Robinson was going to go on one out of my three rosters. I ended up doing seven rosters, which is what I'll be doing the rest of the year, or at least the next few months with the way I'm going to approach these uh, single entry, three entry max tournaments. But uh, he ended up on none of my rosters. I wrote down James Robinson going on one of three light blue. I'm not married to that idea yet. That's just that's just kind of how I was seeing things at that point in the week. Um, and then Seahawks. I made a note that the Seahawks, none of whom were on my player pool from the research, but I made a note the Seahawks had the fifth highest implied team total and Russ was going to be under-owned. So that was just a note that I wanted to keep in mind there. The next thing I have is some pairings. Now, this was while reading the scroll and reading everybody else's strategy thoughts on the slate. So think about this. Right now, I feel confident. And, and let me take a step back. In the past, one of the mistakes I made for at least a couple of years, when I first started creating a lot of content, writing the NFL Edge, and I would be so deep in the research and focus on everything for a couple of days that by the time I came out of it, I've talked about this, but I didn't really remember what my thoughts were on any of the games because you're going through it so fast to create those thoughts and, and develop the research and understand how it all fits together. And I was writing up, you know, 13 to 16 games at the time. And so I would go back and read the NFL edge and, or I guess this was before I go back and read the NFL edge. So I do all this research and then I would kind of essentially find myself starting from scratch in building my player pool because I, I like all the work I put in at the front end of the week, I just sort of left it. And I think there's a tendency to either totally forget about all your thoughts from the beginning of the week or to cling so tightly to your thoughts from the beginning of the week that you don't leave room for adjusting anywhere. Again, once we understand that we're going to have guys who go off for a big game that we considered, it's going to happen all the time. We're not trying to get a sense of who's going to have the biggest game this week. We just want to know what's going to give us our best shot at a first place victory, taking all of the factors into account. So uh, at this point, I'm reading through the scroll and trying to get a sense of how 
the other super sharp guys on the OWS team are seeing the slate. So I ended up putting down a Ridley Pitts potential pairing. I ended up putting down a Mixon and Najee potential pairing that came from uh, Hilo's end around. I ended up putting down a Diggs and Najee and Deontay potential pairing. Uh, I wrote down Tannehill in addition to Hilo. That, that allows me to kind of start thinking through, we talked last week about how many points are available on a given team. I think those podcasts that we talked about that, but take out the quarterback, DraftKings points. Typically, a team as a whole is going to produce 75 to 95 DraftKings points. Even a super low total team is usually going to get up to about 65 points. Every once in a while, we'll have a game where a team puts up 100 to 110 points that's taking all of the players outside of the quarterback. So understanding, okay, what's the, the total potential for points here? So I write down Ridley Pitts, and then I can start thinking through, okay, well, let's say that the Falcons, Falcons throw a lot. So PPR, their, their chance of getting up to 80, 85, 90 points is pretty good. What slice of that 85 to 90 points can Pitts and Ridley conceivably get? Can they get 50 of those points? Can they get 60 of those points? And then you start thinking through, okay, well, Let's demystify the slate. Let's calculate those numbers. What is 50 points? I'm not worried about this guy gets this many catches and this guy gets this many catches. I'm just saying between them, can they combine for 13 catches, 150 yards with one of them getting the bonus? We're now up to 31 points. Uh, Add on three touchdowns, we're up to 49 points. Is that viable? Is that reasonable and realistic from those guys? Okay, what about... Ridley can put up 130 yards on his own. Pitts can put up 80 yards. So now we say, well, now we've got 210 yards plus the bonus. That's 24 points plus 15 catches. That's 39. You add two touchdowns. We're up to 51 points. So understanding like, is this reasonable and realistic for this pairing from this team to do this? What if the Falcons score 110 points? Well, what type of, now it's easier to, to paint these guys combining for 60, but what type of game scenario leads to the, the Falcons as a team putting up 110 points? Now you're in a situation where you have to play guys from the other side of this game, like not just Jalen Hurts, but probably Hurts plus somebody else, or maybe Miles Sanders to get some leverage because Sanders would be taking away points from Hurts. And um, So that kind of allows you to start working through these pairings and seeing, like I hear it all the time, does this pairing make sense? Does this player block make sense? And it's like, okay, well, how many total points is this team going to score? And can this these, this two or three player pairing actually get that many points? So that kind of gives you that sense of, of how to start playing around with these player pairings, narrowing things down and so on and so forth. So now I start kind of building my player pool in preparation for writing player grid with some new pairings set up. So. I've got, and this isn't necessarily game related yet, as far as like, you're going to see some pairings on here that are from different games, but I wrote down Hertz, Camara, and Pitts, just thinking, what are some ways to start out some rosters? Hertz, Camara, and Pitts. Hertz, James Robinson. Uh, Tannehill, James Robinson, Camara, AJ Brown, Callaway, MVS, Pitts, Ridley, Falcons. So now we've got the Pitts and Ridley pairing on there. I started talking about the MVS stuff deeper into the week, but MVS plus Callaway plus Kamara to kind of offset that Callaway ownership. Bet on a shootout there in which Devontae Adams gets shut down. MVS is taking away points from Devontae Adams. Um, And then uh, Zach Wilson, Elijah Moore, CMC, 
roster with Dalvin and Jamar Chase also on it. Uh, Devontae Smith or T. Higgins were both in that same price range and would have fit on that roster. Pitts, Najee Harris, and the Broncos. That's a full roster. I didn't end up using it. That's a full roster. So I'm not married to any of these things. I'm just getting a sense of what I like, what's out there. Now we're getting deeper into the week. I wasn't on Marvin Jones at all yet at this point. And by the time we reach Sunday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Marvin Jones on five out of seven rosters. I don't have Brandon Cooks yet. I ended up with Brandon Cooks on one or two of those rosters. So now I have some notes that say Robinson, Marvin, Cooks, question mark. When you're in there, when you're in the week, you understand why you're putting those things in there. Maybe you want to leave a couple extra notes for yourself, but start kind of seeing, okay, what are the different angles? What are the different ways that things can play out? How did I start getting to those players? Well, one of the things that I want to start doing around this point in the week, in fact, let me find where this is in my notes, uh, is comparing the names and projections and, and other players who are showing up in that range of projections. So we talk about having an edge over projections. And if you've been with me for a long time, I've talked for a long time or used to talk about how detrimental projections are to our DFS play. That's because everyone just had median projections and that's what they put out there. In 2019, we launched the GPP ceiling tool. Since then, other sites have started putting together tools that are similar to what we put together there. Uh, the Blitz, which again is, is also powered by EV Analytics, which powers the GPP ceiling tool. Uh, the Blitz has ceiling and floor projections. But once we have that, once we're no longer saying, what's a player's medium projection, but we're saying, what's his 80th percentile projection or 85th or 90th or whatever, now we have something to work with. And if you trust that the projections are sharp, which ours are, you can go to the projections and say, okay, A, let me match up my thoughts against these projections. I'm looking for players who I'm rating really high and that the projections might be rating lower than me. If the projections are rating them lower than I have them, I have to rethink things. It doesn't mean I'm not playing that guy, but I have to say, okay, what am I seeing that the projections might not be able to see? Or maybe I say, well, okay, his chances of getting this big game are a little bit lower than I might have been giving him, but he can still get to this big game, and here's the scenarios I'm seeing. But you're also able to see players who pop in projections that you might have overlooked. This is a key step. This is why somebody like Cubs fan spends his time reading the NFL Edge to know what the game, how the games are likely to play out, listening to podcasts to know what the field is likely to do, and then looking at projections to understand what are the ceilings on these different guys and who's going overlooked, who's just going totally overlooked. So Terry McLaurin last week was a guy who popped in projections. When you, you're scrolling through the GPP ceiling tool, what I do is I scroll through just looking at price. I'm not even looking at the, the 80th percentile score or 85th percentile score. I'm just looking at price. And I'm waiting to see one of those guys who it's like 7,900, 7,300, 7,800, and then a guy who's 6,600. As soon as that pops, I want to consider that guy. It doesn't mean I'm adding him, but now I'm pulling Terry McLaurin. Another guy who popped last week was Tyler Lockett. Why? Because the Seahawks had the fifth highest implied team total on the slate. Through the research, you're not saying Tyler Lockett's a great play, but you are saying, well, this is a guy who can hit and nobody's going to be on him. 
through that research, Marvin Jones was popping uh, at his price point. He was projected higher than or as well as any of the other cheap wide receivers. And while he was grabbing ownership, it was like, well, this is probably a sharper play than going to 25 or 30% owned Callaway. It's better to go to 15% owned Marvin Jones if they're projecting the same way. I don't want to overrate my knowledge. If these two guys are equally likely to produce and one of them is half the ownership of the other, that's a great way for me to strengthen my rosters, give myself a better shot at first place. If Callaway hits and Marvin Jones doesn't, that's fine because if we played out this slate 100 times and I keep making that decision, that's going to be a massively profitable decision over time. So comparing the, the what you're seeing to the projections, especially late week projections, and being willing to open up your mind to some of those things, also being willing to say, oh, here's some guys who I like, but they're being projected lower than I expected. Now, I will say that's going to be pretty rare if you're pulling players from the NFL edge. It's more like I started thinking through strategy late last week, and Clyde Edwards Hilaire was just such a great leverage play off of the other Chiefs players. And I was surprised at kind of how low he was coming in in the projections from like a, a price for upside standpoint. So then I'm having to think, well, you know, his role could be expanded and obviously he's massive leverage, but let me not overrate the strength of this, this play itself, right? So the guys who you're pulling out from the NFL edge, you're going to get a really good sense of who the strongest by the numbers plays are on the slate. There's going to be plays that just because of our understanding of how offenses and defenses are run, that we're going to rate a little bit lower. And then you can see those guys in the GPP ceiling tool. Like take Tyler Lockett, for example, he had a huge game, but he had, I think it was four five, six targets, right? So you're not saying, well, he's going to hit in that matchup over and over again. He's going to hit in that spot over and over again. How did we all overlook him? You're just saying, here's a guy who can hit for a bigger score that if he's 3% owned, well, he's going to hit for a tournament winning score more than once every 33 games in this type of spot, in this type of game scenario. So you kind of start finding guys who you can say, yeah, I understand that this guy maybe not might not have as big of a shot at hitting as the projections are saying, but he's a guy who I want to keep in mind for some different ways to build around things. Uh, and this kind of allows you to start again, like I said at the top, pushing forward on things, you kind of start getting things settled, you strengthen your thoughts on certain players. Like for me, there's certain players who, as I get deeper into the week, it becomes more and more evident that I'm definitely playing Marquez Valdez-Scantling on rosters, right? Or I'm definitely playing Najee Harris on some rosters. And as you get deeper into the week, you start getting a better sense of who the guys are who are like definitely going to go on some rosters. You're not sure how many yet, but they're definitely part of your player pool. Or like if you're playing 30 rosters, 40, 50 rosters, it might be that these guys are part of more of your rosters. And you get to also get a sense of, okay, these guys are kind of floating around the outside of my build. Now I understand like how this slate might start piecing together. And you see how different this is from just going through the app or going through, you know, on the desktop and like seeing what the prices are and pulling players on a roster instead, like there's, I, you know, at this point I maybe built 20 or 30 rosters to get a sense of how pricing fits and how pricing works, but they're all rosters that I know I'm not going to use. They're just practice builds to get a sense of how everything fits together to make the slate more flexible for myself. 
and it's deeper into the week. Now I have my thoughts sharpened and I'm able to start seeing how things get pieced together. So now deeper into the week, I end up with Tyler listed. I end up with Tannehill and AJ Brown and Christian Kirk with a question mark. Unfortunately, I did not end up going to Christian Kirk. Uh, I ended up with Kyle Pitts times four out of seven rosters, which was where I ended up. Uh, and underneath I listed Matt Ryan and Ridley and Pitts. And I said, this assumes 75 points through the air, potential for 50 for these two. Um, Hertz and Ridley and Pitts with a question mark. Uh, Mike Davis and Pitts. And below that, Diggs and Deontay. Below that, James Robinson and Marvin Jones. And then below that, uh, Brandon Cooks with a question mark. And it ended up being Cooks and Marvin Jones was the way I played that one. Um, and so basically, like, I've got all these little pairings and all these little pieces and all these different ways. Uh, you know, I talked last week about the really interesting way that Valdez Scantling and Kamara and Pitts and Tyreek Hill all fit together. Now, that's from three different games. How do those players fit together? Quick recap. Obviously, MVS is taking away points from Devontae rosters if he hits. So that's great for me because Devontae is going to be much higher owned. Kamara is taking away points from Callaway if he hits. So that's good for me. It's a nice pairing. But then I'm also saying, well, basically I'm saying, well, now I'm going to put Tyreek Hill on this roster because I'm taking away points from Devontae Adams in this scenario. If MVS is hitting, I'm hurting the Devontae Adams rosters. The Devontae Adams rosters don't have Tyreek Hill. So now I get some extra boost with Tyreek Hill. If he has a big game, he's soaring past those rosters even further. And then if Tyreek Hill's having a big game, he's taking away points from Kelsey. So now I want to play Pitts on this roster to say, I'm going to gain ground on these Kelsey rosters because not only am I getting points for Tyreek Hill that are taking away points from Kelsey, but I'm lowering Kelsey's score with these Tyree kill points. And now I'm closing the gap on those Kelsey rosters if Kyle Pitts hits. And so I'm putting together these little blocks that might fit together on different rosters. And now I've got, you know, this quarterback listed with a few different ways to play him, this quarterback listed with a few different ways to play him, this quarterback listed with a few different ways to play him. And then I have some other blocks that also combine and I'm able to start seeing, okay, this four player block can fit with this three player block. It tells a nice story as a whole. It's, you know, two blocks of, of, you know, whether it's stacks or, you know, strategic leverage stuff that I've already thought through works well together and I can piece it all onto one roster. And then you kind of have one spot left that you can say, okay, you know, who's the other player I feel confident in. Or like I mentioned Pittman last week and said, I probably won't actually play him because there's no real strategy angle to it because that game as a whole was kind of going overlooked. So then you're just saying, Oh, I hope this guy has a big game, right? Like, yeah, I, I love Paris Campbell as a player. He's going to have games this year where he has eight, nine, 10 targets. But if I'm just guessing and hoping I get that player right, that's not helping me get to first place nearly as much as if he provides some sort of leverage. Once Michael Pittman started coming in at like 10 to 15% ownership prediction, then it was like, okay, now Paris Campbell can be played because he's taking away points from Pittman. Not to say you can never play pit players who don't have some sort of strategy angle, but the more you can do that, the better it's going to be for your builds. The more you can say, I'm not going to overrate my ability to predict exactly what will happen, but to instead, it's like in best ball when they say draft in tiers. So you're not necessarily saying, oh, this guy from the fifth round fell to the sixth round, so I'm going to grab him. You're instead saying, all right, these players are kind of in this tier. These players are kind of in this tier. And so you're, you're 
not jumping tiers, so to speak. So it's like, if there's a bunch of players who kind of project similarly, I want the guy who's lower owned and or who's lower owned and takes away points from a higher owned player. And always think about the math behind things. If Pittman's going to be 15% owned and Paris Campbell's going to be 3% owned, three times five is 15. So is Michael Pittman five times more likely than Paris Campbell to have a big game in this spot? And that's where we kind of start seeing, okay, well, no. And if I take Paris Campbell on this roster and he hits, he's taking away points from the Michael Pittman rosters, which gives me some strategy and some leverage. So that helps you see how I go through the week and you see how kind of some plays that were on my narrow player pool early in the week aren't on my rosters late in the week. Some guys who weren't there early in the week make their way on later in the week. But there's a process for me of kind of pushing forward and then stepping back and regrouping, pushing forward, stepping back and regrouping. So I get this sense of who is actually, you know, and it forces me to, I'll say it like this. Start out with at the top of the funnel is the example I often use. you got all the players from all the games. And once you recognize that we're not just trying to guess on who's going to have a big game, once you recognize that there's going to be guys of a big game that you never considered, that's okay because there's going to be guys who are lower likelihood than their percentage ownership chance or just lower likelihood than other guys you consider that week and are negative EV, but they can still have a big game. Once you understand that, it's easier to start cutting players out to go through the NFL edge and say, okay, here's the sharpest plays from the slate. And that's going to, I mean, that's like, I can't tell you how many like big time DFS players subscribe to OWS don't read the NFL edge, don't consume all of our other content, but swing through at the end of the week to read the player grid, just to see, okay, what's JM's player pool? Well, I come to that player pool primarily through reading the NFL edge and just pulling those guys out. So start pulling those players out and you get a sense of who the sharpest plays are and then start trying to poke holes in those arguments. The guys who you just can't get away from who just feel like these massive locks of the week, start trying to poke holes in those guys. Um, and so you start getting a better and better sense of why players are on your on your player pool, which players actually present you with some sort of strategic advantage instead of just like the example I use with Paris Campbell. If if he's 8% owned or 6% owned and Michael Pittman's 8 or 6% owned and nobody's playing the other side of that game, there's no real strategy advantage to just picking Campbell and hoping he has a big game. So you have to have, you know, if, at least at least as a tiebreaker, something where you say, how does this help me get to first place beyond just hoping I guess right on this? Because if you're always just trying to guess right on players, it's still going to be hard to get to first place. You need something in there that says, yeah, and this this gets me points. And if it does, it moves me past the field in this way. For me personally, if I miss out on six or seven players who pop up pop off for a huge game and give me no strategic edge by playing them. I'm not concerned about that because I'm going to make a lot more money if I'm focusing on the places where I can actually directly leverage what the field is doing and play strategy elements that move me ahead of them when their plays are wrong, not just because they lose those points, but I'm gaining the points that they're missing out on. So that's how I kind of take all this information chop it down to the, the sharpest plays through the NFL edge. And then from there, start figuring out how these pieces fit together, what strategic angles there are that I can play. 
and then kind of start taking, after I've done all of that, I feel very confident in my thoughts. I can then start taking in additional angles from other people and saying, oh yeah, I've seen set, like there was five different OWS guys who mentioned Marvin Jones last week. And then look at projections, see Marvin Jones projects well. And so then you say, well, this is a guy that I haven't been considering that I probably need to consider a little bit more. And so you add him to the player pool and you think, how can I play this in such a way that it actually benefits me? Well, already he's gaining an edge on Callaway just because of the price point, but also the uh, bringing him back with Brandon Cooks is a nice way to play it and get extra points from this game and things play out the right way. So that kind of helps you to take all of this information and start saying, yeah, there's going to be plays I'm going to miss that are going to have a big game, but that's not really what I'm hunting for. What I'm hunting for is who's likely to have a big game and is likeliest to help me get to first place if they have a big game. Uh, and how can I put all those pieces together? So that is what I wanted to get to this week. I think we did a good job time-wise. Um, the other thing I want to talk before we get to the Q&A is let me pull this up on the site. Uh, this is in the reflection content. And it is in Mike Johnson's process points. So, uh, oh no, it's down at the bottom in the first place build, which is a, a little bonus one that I added. So Mike sent me a text the other night. Uh, in fact, it was before week one kicked off that the average points for first place in the slant last year was 240 points. So the slant is about 40K to 60K entries. You have to talk about how many rosters you have to be. You have to be, you know, 40,000 to 60,000 for first place. Average first place score was 240. In the spy and power sweep, where you have to beat about 4,000 to 6,000 entries, so 10% as many entries, the average score was 228. So 240 to 228, that's still a massive score you're having to get to beat these 4,000 entries. And, you know, one of the things that I noted in, in the little article I posted was, realistically, 10 points is still a lot, right? Like if you finish 10 points behind the winner in the slant, you might not even be in the top four or 5% of the, you know, of the leaderboard. So 10 points is still a lot, but what that really illustrates is you, you still needed 228 points on average to win this 4,000 to 6,000 entry tournament. And I think a lot of times people, when they get to these tournaments that are smaller fields like that 4,000 to 6,000 entries, they take on so little risk and they go into their little turtle shell and play these really safe, quote, sharp plays and try to build a uh, like build an optimal build. And what they miss out on is, yeah, like you might be able to finish in the money that way, but to get to first place, you still need something different and you still need a lot of upside. So one of the things I put in there is this question that we should ask ourselves with each of our rosters. Am I exposing myself to enough unique upside for a first place finish? And one of the ways we do that is by thinking about, we still need to get these monster scores in these quote, smaller field tournaments. And so we still need to be thinking about, you know, when uh, somebody asked last week, uh, do we still need to think about correlation in smaller field tournaments? I think it was on discord and it was like, yeah, I mean, you need to think about correlation in every tournament because that's your best shot at first place. But especially in 4,000 to 6,000 entry tournaments, you still need to be thinking about all these things. You still need to be thinking about what's the game that could shoot out 
and get me outlier scores? What are these spots that could get me outlier scores? I also like to think about this. We, we talked about this last week with uh, DeAndre Hopkins. Like if DeAndre Hopkins hits his ceiling, he's probably going to get you 30, 32, 33 points because of the way that Arizona offense operates. He scored two touchdowns in week one and he put up, I think like 26 points. If Devontae Adams hits his high end game, he's getting you 40, 41, 42. A great example of this is going to be Nick Chubb this week in a spot where everybody's probably going to want to play him. He's 7,800. I snuck a peek the other night. I think it was 7,800. And if you start calculating what, what a, 40-point score looks like for Nick Chubb. Let's give him three catches for 30 yards, right? So now he still needs to get 34 points on the ground. What's that? 190 yards and two touchdowns, 190 yards. He gets three-point bonus. Two touchdowns, he gets up to 34 points. And you add on this passing work, he gets up to 40. Like, he's going to need a monster game to blow past his salary. And so optimally, all things being equal, we want these guys who have a, uh, a pretty clear case we can make for outlier scores. So that's why last week when Tyreek Hill wasn't like popping in the research, but it was like, well, what's the way to gain some edge on the field? Well, Tyra, I don't really feel great about Devontae Adams' chances of getting an outlier score against the Saints defense. And in this projected game environment, as Hilo laid out in the NFL edge. And so who from this high-end wide receiver tier can get me an outlier score? Calvin Ridley was very close to my builds all week. He didn't end up on any of my rosters. Tyreek Hill ended up on two or three of my rosters because I'm looking at who are the guys who can get me 40 points. Ridley could if everything went right in that game. Tyreek Hill can get me 40 to 50 if everything goes right for him. So looking for those opportunities to say, maybe I take on a little more risk with this guy, but I'm also getting a guy who can pop for a huge game we need to be doing that even in these four thousand to six thousand entry tournaments so with that i am going to if mike is still around mike go ahead and raise your hand i'll let you know there we go uh looks like aaron got you in mike uh any additional thoughts you want to throw in on this hey uh can you guys hear me all right yep come through okay all right um yeah no i think um what you said was good and then i actually like the slant and power sweep stuff. Um, when I went back through like this on uh, Roto Grinders, the uh, results database, and looked back through. So like the slant this last week, the winner uh, had two hundred and eight points. Um, and the power sweep, uh, and there's about forty thousand people in it. The power sweep was. Uh, sorry, I want to see how many entries. There's about forty five hundred. Um, in that, so about 10x the size, right? Um, but the power sweep, the winning score was 197. Um, so yeah, like you said, it's a 10 point difference. But like if you look at the slant, um, there was only the top 10 in the slant would have won the power sweep. So like you know, and kind of what I was getting at is like think about it. Like well, if you max entered the slant every single week and we're doing it like approaching this as like I'm going to make these highly correlated GPP winning lineups how often are you finishing in the top 10? Um, and that's kind of like where my thought process was going from it is like, you still need a lineup that would be finishing like very high in these large, um, large field tournaments. I think, and you kind of alluded to it, the tendency is to think um, 
from more of like a cash standpoint and like a sure thing standpoint. And then I'll build in some, you know, I'll be, find some places to be different when in reality, I think you should, you should be building it as a tournament lineup regardless you can kind of step back from there and say like, okay, am I too far off the board more than I need to be for this specific tournament? So just kind of an approach that way um, is kind of how, how I, I see it at least. Yeah. And when we get to these tournaments of like 300 to 500 entries, that's where I'm a little bit more comfortable saying, yeah, let me just, let me take a little bit of a sharper, like optimal approach that still has enough off the board thought processes or correlations or whatever that I can move past the field. But like you said, basically the first place roster in, in the power sweep would have finished 11th in the slant. And that's 11th out of 60,000 rosters. And it required that score to finish first out of 4,500 rosters. Furthermore, that's a three entry max and the slant is 150 entry max. So, so somebody with their three entry max was able to put together a roster that would have finished 11th in a 150 max tournament. And I'm sure that there are rare random weeks where even those three entry max tournaments end up with a higher first place score. It might be at once every couple of years, but a higher first place score than the first place score in those 150 max tournaments. And, and it's just so important to think about getting to first place and what that actually requires. Um, Mike, anything else you want to throw in here, I know uh, for any of you who haven't read it, he's got an awesome piece in the Reflection Scroll this week. Um, but anything else you want to throw in here before we move on to the Q and A? Um, oh yeah, just I mean, just with what you just said, I think that biggest thing to keep in mind is the people who are have a chance to win, like you said about like not you know you have to realize how many people kind of aren't thinking the right way, um, and I think that the percentage of the people who are, are building lineups that can win, you know, the percentage of them is probably the same or maybe even higher in some of these um, sharper uh, tournaments. So it's like, um, it, it makes some sense that, you know, and like what you brought up with the, uh, the points when I was looking back to figure out the averages, I think there was three or four times where in the power sweep of the spy last year, the winning score was actually higher than the slant. Um, so, and I mean, I would imagine that, um, people who are putting those in, like if, if you're putting it in a, a power sweep, you're probably also playing like the, the nickel or the, um, the engage aid or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I just think it's, just always have to, you should, you know, I, I equate it to, um, I'm a, a pretty avid golfer. Um, and I've played in some like match play, uh, tournament or tournaments and events. And, um, the analogy that I, I came across my mind after we were talking is, um, so on match play, right. You know, okay. I just have to beat this guy. Well, you know, if I hit my drive right down the middle and he hits his in the woods, now maybe I get more conservative on my next shot. I don't just play it how I would play it. If I was just playing for the best score I can make on that hole. Well, all of a sudden he chips in or makes a 40 footer and it's like, Oh wait, like, you know, just tied the hole or maybe lost the hole because I, I got really conservative. So I think just from the mindset standpoint, like you should just always be trying to make the best tournament roster that you can make and not, not adjusting too much. Like you said, the, the 300 and 500 uh, entry tournaments are, are, are a different animal, but I mean, when you get into anything over a couple thousand, it's, you know, it, it's negligible 
Um, if you're not building to win, you're not going to win any size. I love that. If you're not building to win, you're not going to win any size. And, I, and I'll also say, um, I've said this before, like in four other places on the site, but um, I still have this quote from one of your courses written down. It says, higher achievement is almost always ac accomplished in the presence of higher expectations. And if you're not thinking about first place, you're not going to get first place because you're not built. It's not magic, right? It's just that you're not building a first place roster. So if you're not building a first place roster, you're going to have a really, you're going to have to get really lucky to get a first place um, finish. And so the, um, and, and I don't know, Mike had to have you hop off, but I'm going to have you hop off. Yeah, I can hop off. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, thanks for stopping by. I'm going to, I'm going to go through uh, a quick thought here and then we'll get to the Q and a first in the uh, questions that were submitted earlier and then we'll open up the mic, but the um, hold on one second. All right, I'm back. Um, so the uh, analogy that came to my mind when Mike was talking about the golf stuff, because I don't, I don't play golf. And so the way that I kind of related it over here is the, um, you see these coaches, we talk about coaches who play to not lose instead of playing to win. And the teams that are consistently in the Super Bowl, for example, are teams that are aggressive throughout the game, right? They're always kind of putting pressure on the opponent, either defensively or offensively or both. They're putting pressure on the opponent and they're kind of always staying intelligently aggressive, we could call it. And so that being intelligently aggressive where you're not just, you know, taking a shot to you're, you're not Kyle Shanahan in the Super Bowl against the Patriots where they just needed to stay in field goal range to ice the game and you're dropping back and passing, right? Like you don't have to be dumb in your aggressiveness, but you need to be aggressive. You need to be thinking about first place at all times. So that brings us to the questions. Uh, the first question came from Dink Puppy. And he asked, uh, uh, he said, or are you agnostic on which rosters are assigned to different buy-in levels? Buy-in levels don't matter. The higher the buy-in level, the sharper the players are, generally speaking. And so, um, but those same players are also in the lower buy-in levels there's going to be more dead rosters in the lower buy-in levels. But to get to first place, you still have to beat the same people, basically, that you have to beat at the lower buy-in levels. So the only thing that I'm changing based on, as far as how I'm building my rosters, is based on tournament size. So the larger the tournament, the more differently I'm building my rosters. That's how I ended up with this seven-roster approach that I'll probably stick to for at least the next eight to 10 weeks. Cause I like to kind of pick a path and stick to it for my own plan. And also for you guys so that I can break down how I'm approaching things. But I did, uh, I, you know, it's kind of my first time strictly doing three entry max and single entry. And I went with the high low approach of three rosters for my three entry max and then a separate roster for my single entry. But then also where I was in three entry max, that was 5,000 ish entries versus three entry max that was 500-ish entries, I built a different set of three rosters. So three rosters that were built specifically for the 500 entry three maxes or 500-ish entry three maxes, and then three separate rosters that were built for the 5,000-ish three max, and then one roster that was built for the single entry tournaments that I was in. So very much so changing things based on size of the tournament, especially as Mike and I were just talking about, when you're getting to these tournaments, it's like, 500 entries now if it was 
5,000 entries and 50,000 entries, based on the stuff that Mike was talking about, I'd probably be using kind of the same rosters, but I'm going to be doing something a little bit different in 300, 400, 500 entry fields versus the, uh, the larger fields. Uh, old friend Jay McGrath asked, when watching Game Pass, are there specific things you are watching for? The main thing I want to watch for is I, I want to, it's almost like, well, I, I've used this example. When I was coaching, uh, I was coaching uh, you know, in high school football in Oklahoma, and my job was to help with film breakdown on Saturdays and Sundays, and then to be in the booth on Friday nights. Um, and the coaches that I was working with, uh, the head coach was two-time coach of the year in Oklahoma and, um, you know, kind of a, a, a legend. In fact, uh, he coached uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin in high school. Um, but he was, you know, super sharp coach. And watching film with them, they could watch the All-22 and watch, watch a play one time and know what the offensive line had done, what the defensive line had done, what the linebackers had done, what coverage the secondary was in, who messed up in their coverage, what the wide receivers route concepts and combinations were. Like they could watch all 22 players and, and see it all as a snapshot because they'd been doing it for 40 years and they were really good at what they did. And that's kind of what we want to be watching these games doing. So from the broadcast view which is probably what you have the most time to watch because you can watch the condensed game if you watch the all 22 it takes two or three hours to watch a single game so from the broadcast view you're not going to see like the whole field at once you're not going to see everything but you can watch basically i'm generally watching like team movement so you're watching how the like the titans last year talk about the or the titans you know in the past under arthur smith same thing with the browns Last year with Stefanski, same thing with the Vikings, the, the, that boot action type of setup where you have the outside zone runs that are moving one way and the quarterback's booting the other way, the wide receivers are moving the other way. And so you start getting a sense that, oh, this, this offense tries to stretch the defense horizontally to open up space so that when guys catch passes, they can make big plays afterward. You watch the 49ers, everything with like the team's movement as a whole is very downhill, offense and defense. There's a lot of downhill movement with everything that they're doing. And then you kind of start, like I was watching uh, Lexel like this. I was watching the Saints game yesterday and I'm not watching Camara specifically. I'm watching the movement of both teams, but Camara just pops every time he gets the ball. Same thing with Christian McCaffrey, where if you're not, you know who else pops actually is Tony Jones. Um, but when you're not, you don't know who's on the field. You're not necessarily paying attention to that. But when certain players pop, then where they just they move at a different speed than the other games you've been watching, right? If you just come off watching the Jets and Tevin Coleman's getting the ball, and then you watch the Saints and Alvin Kamara's getting the ball, the just the actual movement, the patience, the vision, the way he kind of moves through holes is just so different from what you see from other teams, other players, um, and then. I want to watch for individual players. If certain things are, um, you know, if there's a certain player I want to watch, if there's certain things that are standing out to me, I want to watch for individual players. So like when I talk about, talked about Deontay Johnson's route running last year, Russell Gage, um, Paris Campbell, you're watching their feet. You're watching how they set up the defender. You're watching what they do with their upper body to 
put the defender off balance to get an understanding of, hey, what type of route runner is this guy? Is Can he do things on his own? That allows when you get to a game where, um, you know, you've got man coverage and you've got some wide receiver that you know really isn't a route technician, you're like, well, this guy probably isn't going to shake open consistently throughout this game. Whereas, you know, a route technician, you have a chance for them to have a huge game against man coverage. So that allows you to kind of gain that edge on the projection system that we talk about, where you have a deeper understanding of what certain players are good at, what they're bad at. I'm getting much deeper into this answer than I expected to, because I want to get to all of the Q&A uh, within time. But uh, I think it's also all pretty valuable for any of you who have the time to watch games. You're also watching how what the pre-snap motion is on a team, like if they're doing anything to throw the defense off pre-snap, you're watching the defense to see is the defense like, like the Panthers. The Panthers really are just kind of playing a, a straight-ahead zone defense. They're rarely doing things to confuse the quarterback. It was the same thing last year. So you're looking to see, can this defense keep a young quarterback off balance? Are they, are they rotating coverages post-snap? Are they bringing multiple guys to the line of scrimmage and dropping some of them back into coverage? Different things they can throw off a quarterback. Um, and then watching route concepts. Is this offense kind of doing certain things to get guys open? Or are they just dropping back and saying, you know, find the open guy and throw it to him? So that's kind of like from a, a starting point to like a larger point of how I would go about watching games. Uh, Coach232 said, I don't have a model, nor do I have experience with spreadsheets. In your opinion, does that put me at a huge disadvantage in crafting lineups? If so, can it be overcome? Um, I don't use a model. I don't have any experience with spreadsheets beyond Googling, figuring out how to do stuff on, on spreadsheets when I have to do it. So no, it does not put you at a disadvantage. And if, if that's not the way you see things, somebody who's really good with spreadsheets doesn't need to be doing the things that I'm doing to see the game the way that I see it. Because that's not how they're going to be. Like Xandamir doesn't need to be watching games and watching coverages and watching pre-snap movement and all that. Xandamir needs to be looking at data and spreadsheets because that's where his strengths are and that's where he's going to find his edge. If you don't see things in that way, then your edge is different. Your edge is going to be understanding these things and putting it together the way that I talk about, the way that I put things together. But you'll get a very clear sense of, of who's who and what's what without a spreadsheet and probably even a better sense if you're watching the games and paying attention um, and doing the other things you talk about, you know, reading Roto World, keeping up with team news, player news, um, and reading the NFL Edge every week. You're going to get a better sense than you would otherwise. Okay, so... Uh, I play cash. This is from Bills, not 66. I play cash, single entry, and three max. I know that OWS emphasizes DK play, but that FanDuel is supposedly softer. Should I be playing on FanDuel instead, even with the teaching geared toward DraftKings? Here, uh, if I if playing about 200 a slate, which contest should I be targeting? Should I play early and afternoon slates or just focus on the main slate? Uh, optimally, you should go wherever your edge is. I lost my first year playing MLB DFS. Um, I made like 135K between Draft Street and DraftKings, and I lost like 40 to 60K on FanDuel MLB. And I kept playing FanDuel MLB being like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this game, you know? And then finally, next year, it was like, oh, I don't have an edge on FanDuel, but I have an edge over here. And so, yeah, final works. Like we say FanDuel is softer because the pricing softer, 
um, people saying FanDuel softer because the pricing softer, but also FanDuel introduces more variance with the, you know, they don't have the kickers anymore, but with the no bonuses and with the softer pricing, it's a lot more of like chalk is getting played and like good chalk, like good plays are, you can fit more good plays under your roster, more elite plays under your roster. Um, and then the, um, the lack of, uh, I guess they have, so for a long time, they didn't have the flex spot. And then they also had a kicker, but now they have the flex spot and the kicker. So that, that changes things a little bit to where the gameplay actually gives you a sharper edge. But, um, but yeah, if you're finding you make money, more money on FanDuel, then play on FanDuel. If you're finding you're having a hard time picking up DraftKings, play on FanDuel. Um, shorter slates tend to give you an edge if you're focusing on them. So wherever you find you can make the most money is where I would say to focus. And I think we'll probably start, you know, branching more and more into FanDuel content throughout this season and heading into next year. So uh, kind of give you guys those strategy angles as well. Uh, DePeach asked, how would you strategize for this week with all the potential late hammers if you don't want to play a split slate? So I wouldn't worry about who's playing late and who's playing early unless you're going to go in with a clear uh, late draft, uh, late game strategy. So for example, um, Brandon Adams, who's one of my favorite DFS players uh, and also a Harvard professor and also uh, super great with finance stuff. But uh, Brandon Adams uh, owns Advanced Sports Analytics, ASA. And Aaron and I were having some calls with him last year to uh, work through some partnership stuff and, and just also kind of kick around ideas. And Brandon had had a, a Millie Maker I think it was a second and third place finish in the Millie Maker with the same roster, two of the same rosters. And so Aaron asked him, what was the thinking on having those rosters the same? And he said that he basically builds like, I don't know if this is exactly what it was, but basically builds like 75 rosters or 50 rosters with duplicates and with players on the late games. And then when he gets, you know, toward the end of the early games, the rosters of his that have a shot that are in good shape, he goes in and says, okay, here's two rosters that are identical. I want to leave look like from my early games. That's one way to do it. If you're building like three or five rosters or something like that, even 10, 15 rosters, I wouldn't personally be too worried about what's early and what's late because you know, you're, you're building, you want the best strategy plays. Now with that said, all the late games this week, you know, at first glance, I haven't really kind of taken the macro look at the slate yet. I've been working through individual games, but I have noticed that all the late games have, you know, higher over-unders and are better spots in general. So you're going to have rosters that have late game players on them. And then on Sunday, you know, if you're, if you have a roster that's out of it and you've got a chalky player going late, then you adjust and you put on, you know, a lower owned player. If you, uh, in, if you're in good shape heading into late games, then you kind of try to keep your edge by playing who you think the best plays are. Uh, at Badger 34 says, um, I don't know if I'm the only one. I would suspect not, but I put at least one, sometimes two, of Moster, James Robinson, Mike Davis in about 90% of my rosters, single entry, three entry max, 20 entry max, which cratered every roster, at least for the top of the leaderboards. While I know why they failed, injury slash game script, I personally thought they should have smashed in their situations. It is easy to just say shit happens, but would you have any suggestions on how to prevent this or make it happen less frequently? The only way to prevent it happening is to not go 90% on your rosters, but that doesn't mean that going 90% is a bad thing. We've talked about this. It's, it's almost like saying, okay, I'm going to approach 
building 30 rosters, like a single entry player. And if you're doing that, you're saying, if these guys fail, they fail, my, my week's done. But if they hit, then all my rosters are banging on the door for first place. Um, in the aftermath of a week like that, especially as you're kind of working to build this bigger picture thinking, in the aftermath of a week like that, it can be really frustrating because you, you all your roster is cratered. But you're not going in and saying, you know, well, I think the Texans are going to smash the Jaguars and James Robinson's going to be out of the game script. I think that, you know, Mike Davis, who was on the field the entire game, basically, like, you know, Cordero Patterson got, I think it was seven carries, but as far as snaps, it was primarily Mike Davis, um, you know, at 5,400, still a screaming value. And they lost, I think it was 32 to six game script just went off the rails. Moster got hurt his second carry. Nothing you can do about that. Um, just hope that all that bad luck was concentrated on one week and move on from it. But yeah, you can spread things out and, and, you know, build your rosters with more things taken into account. But if you're going to say, I'm comfortable playing all my entries with some across the board bets, which kind of that's the way I approach things as well, then it's totally fine. You just have to understand that there's going to be a little bit more all or nothing to your week. Uh, old friend crossover King 78 said, JM, do you research prop bets and do they have any place in your weekly process? Uh, no, I don't. The primarily because, um, as as uh, Josh Jerry's eleven has laid out, you know, prop bets are kind of a loss leader for books, and they're the most beatable bet. And so, generally speaking, you can use the NFL. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I've I've talked to people who set props in Vegas. I've talked to a guy who sets props for a sports book in Vegas. He reads the NFL Edge to see where he wants to adjust his props, and then to go bet with other sports books to kind of gain the the edge of that bad that they have out there so the nfl edge is going to give you a better sense of who the plays are than prop bets but if you didn't feel confident or you hadn't done research throughout the week or you hadn't looked at a projection system throughout the week you could look at prop bets and get um you know kind of some some ideas of what's likely is to happen but you know as we saw in josh's piece last week some of these prop bets you know nick chubb 13.5 carries over under um antonio gibson i think it was like 12 carries over under you know if you look at that as your guide for expectations for that week you're going to be in trouble instead i would pr much prefer to use the nfl edge to be able to find prop bets that are off and make money that way than uh you know flip it around the other way okay uh ricky seba goal says what sort of importance do you put on average depth of target Kirk Cousins' average A dot is negative three. His receivers are making people miss and gaining yak. How dependable is that? Is that just the type of offense the Vikings run and have a talented enough group that it shouldn't be a concern? Well, we're looking at a pretty small sample size. The Vikings are going to be a downfield passing team. That's part of what they do. They take shots downfield. Um, but yeah, A dot's very important, but understanding how A dot was created is more important. You know, we've had quarterbacks who had a couple 60 yard passes and they might've worked close to the line of scrimmage the rest of the game. So understand how these stats came together is more important than the stat itself. But yeah, uh, deeper throws is going to give you more upside over time. And so just understanding how these deeper throws were created is the most important thing. Uh, MWEK said, I love this site because it's focused so much on improving us all as players. I've been thinking about the concept of grit and deliberate practice as it relates to my goal of being a profitable DFS player. What are some ways you would suggest deliberately practicing 
not just reading, consuming content, areas of DFS play that will make us better on the whole. Some thoughts I already have. One, trying to predict ownership and comparing to actuals. Two, trying to predict chalk builds. Three, bottom-up build contest. I love all of that. Um, that's probably the sharpest stuff you could do. Also coming up with your own game totals for the games. And then as Zandamir said on Saturday night, just learning critical thinking. You know, the critical thinking applies so much to basically every area of your life in which you can make money, but especially DFS and being able to think critically through things and figure out what's what's noise, you know, what's just people following the herd and what's actually sharp thoughts. Um, so yeah, I would, I'm going to leave it at that, but that's kind of what I have on there. Uh, Aunt Bolin asked, so on, we've got three more questions, then we'll open up the mic. Uh, Aunt Bolin asked, so on reflection of my lineups versus top players in my competition, I realized that my average ownership was much higher than theirs. What would you say is a good range for ownership? And do you think their ownership was lower because it's week one and it's more beneficial to be contrarian with less information? Or is it normal to see most pros have 60 to 120% total ownership in lineups on a main slate? Uh, the number we should be targeting supposedly is 125%. But as we've talked about, everything's different, right? You can have a, a roster, Mike broke down in his course some of his wins, and they had, I think, cumulative ownership of like 160, 170, 180%. I would rather a roster that has 180% cumulative ownership and is built around very clear scenarios with very clear strategy and leverage in mind than a roster that's you know 100% cumulative ownership just for the sake of being lower owned. Um, but the main thing is make sure you're not overrating your knowledge. You know, so players that you're owning at a high level across your rosters or that are highly owned and you're kind of piling onto your rosters, make sure you're you're asking like what are the ways that this player could fail? That's also an important question to ask, uh, not just what's the way this player could succeed, which can kind of help you get off of some of the uh, the lower or the higher owned guys, or maybe get them spread out across more rosters. But if you have a bunch of high owned guys and they're built in a super unique way, that's more important than super low cumulative ownership. Tasty Trader asked, are there any clues that a game that has an over under that's a bit lower, let's say 44 to 46, could blow up into a shootout? Yeah, I mean, lots, you know, but primarily we'll leave that to the NFL edge. But um, Teams that have downfield threats. Um, let's see, Patriots and Dolphins this week. No, Patriots and Jets this week. Um, and, and Dolphins, who are the Dolphins playing? Steelers, I think it is. Uh, finding teams that have the, the kind of guys who can score from anywhere on the field and then optimally an aggressive mindset. <laughs> Obviously, that's going to be, if you've got guys who can score from anywhere on the field, but the team isn't playing things aggressively, then that's not going to help you nearly as much as guys. Okay, so it's Bills and Dolphins. So that's a great example of one because you've got Will Fuller, you've got Stephon Diggs, you've got Gabriel Davis, you've got Jalen Waddell. You have guys who can score from anywhere on the field. The over-under is going to be 48. I laid out uh, in my early notes for myself that, um, you know, you could very clearly come up with a case for this being like a, a 26 to 15 game, like the Steelers Bills game last year, like the Steelers Bills game last week kind of ended up lower scoring. But last year, Dolphins and, and Bills combined for, I think it was 62 and 82. Um, and so you can also say, here's a game that like, it would be very easy to paint the scenario where this game comes in well under the 48 point total. 
but there's also a scenario where this game could explode. And so, uh, you know, teams that throw the ball downfield, um, we talked about the Patriots, right, just a moment ago, and, and said they have guys who can score from anywhere on the field. Damian Harris can, Nelson Aguilar can. But if you watch them, they're very much concerned with and interested in picking up first downs and marching down the field. They're going to throw some deep passes, but it might be two or three times a game. Teams that are consistently like and aggressively building in downfield passing into their offensive identity, those are the types of, of games where things can break wide open. And so that's what we want to look for. But, you know, recognize that this isn't MLB or NBA where we have eight hours to kind of digest all this information. This is NFL. We have all week, like by the time we hit Thursday, Friday, Saturday, if you haven't found the game that has that potential, then we've found that game or we're going to be talking about it a little bit. So also I would say just kind of pay attention and, and don't try to make your decisions early in the week. And, you know, don't try to do everything on your own. Recognize that you can kind of lean, you can outsource some of this and see what other people are finding that might also allow you to find those types of scores. Last question from DT2190. Say in week two, you have two similar over-unders in games you like. One game has an offense that smashed week one, and the other has an offense that underwhelmed. Would you be more likely, game theory-wise, taking the underwhelming offense that was chalk week one or the one that smashed? Saying hypothetically game environments are considered similar, i.e. good matchups for each. I would imagine that all things being equal in this situation, where we say we play out this slate a hundred times, this team that Vegas has projected in the same range as this team in a game environment that Vegas has projected the same. One of these teams smashed in week one, and one of these teams underwhelmed in week one. The team that underwhelmed in week one is almost certainly going to be lower owned, and because public sentiment does drive Vegas to an extent, that bet that line probably should have been a little bit higher as well. In other words, this team underwhelmed, which means people are betting are likelier to bet against them. So in that scenario, you know, nothing's an automatic this or that, right? There's no one button you're pushing that's making your decisions, but that certainly puts a lot of uh, additional, you know, marbles onto this side of the weight. If, if you're saying like, we've got the, the, the weights on either side and which side goes down, which side goes up. Well, the side that has fewer people on it and is just as likely to hit is the side that's kind of getting piled onto that. We want to put a little bit more of that onto our rosters. So that's where I would start tilting my thinking in that type of spot. Um, all right. So we have, we started a little bit late. Um, obviously I want to respect your guys' time. So we're going to go 15 minutes and open up the mic for uh, any questions that we have looks like we've got one person with their hand raised and i'm going to see if i can do this on my own uh, open true dawn is here there we go did i do that or did aaron i think aaron did that what's up man <laughs> hey how's it going it's going well so uh i had a thought i was working this week when i was building my rosters my core was the jets carolina game and later in the week i ended up getting higher on the Seattle Colts game. And the reason I ended up not eventually going to Seattle Colts was because if I blended those two games together, 
those are two bets on games like a game environment that are against the field. So I'm trying to bet that the field gets two games like pretty wrong. And also they're both on an island in regard to ownership. So I'm not getting leverage anywhere. So I think it's important to kind of have one game that's like that and then getting leverage in the more chalky games than like just being on an island like that. And if uh, you think that's a reasonable process. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a super sharp way to look at it. Um, You know, we see, especially in week one, like there's going to be more stuff that we get wrong. Uh, The stats, Scott and I talked about this yesterday. And then the, the official stat came out on Rotor World today, but the Titans ran play action on 11% of their plays compared to 36% last year. So there's certain things that, like, that is what makes Tannehill so, like, so powerful in that offense is the way that they built that outside zone running game off of the bootleg action um, with the play action. And so you watch that game and he's just dropping back um, there's you're less likely you're less likely to bet on that game being one of the shootouts of the week if you know that that's how they're going to play the offense. But as we get to week three, four, etc., you basically the spots that have the highest over under and have the the most attention from the field are the spots that are likeliest to hit. Now there's an element that people always look for that game, and some weeks don't have that game. And some weeks have two or three of those games and everybody's focused on one of them. So, you know, every week's a little bit different, but generally speaking, yeah, there's, like you said, it's like what I was saying about Paris Campbell. Like if you don't gain a strategy edge, it's harder to justify it. And so if the field is kind of against both of these games, where's the edge in piling them both on together? It's something that I wouldn't mind doing in the Millie Maker or something, but as you get into smaller contests, I think that the way you approach that, um, was super sharp. Did you end up going, you said you didn't end up going to the Seattle Indy game and you stuck with uh, Jets Carolina? Yeah, I stuck with Jets Carolina, like with interspersed stacks of the Arizona-Tennessee game and the Chiefs. I thought those were like pretty safe game environments. So I like, I wanted to get like some security at the same time as getting leverage alongside the more fragile game with Jets Carolina. Yeah, and that's again a perfect way to to blend it because you're saying here are the games Vegas thinks are going to shoot out that everybody else thinks are going to shoot out and so let me ride those points and then also say if I get um, this other spot correct then I'm moving past everybody and and furthermore if you got the the other two games correct if you paired them together and those ones ended up hitting well you still probably have these popular games hitting and so you not only need these games to hit, you need them to hit at a higher level than those popular games, which just becomes increasingly less likely. So instead saying, all right, I'm going to take pieces from one of these popular games. And even, uh, you know, like the Chiefs weren't that popular. So you take these pieces from these popular games and then combine one of these less popular games. It gives you an edge. The only other thing I would say is we had an over-under of 44 on Jets and Panthers and an over-under of 49 on Seattle Indy. And so, you know, I think that the it was so much harder to pull the trigger trigger on Seattle Indy because of all the reasons that were so obvious to come up with why it could fail. And so I think that a lot of people, you know, in that either or end up going toward Jets Panthers. I did as well. Um, but just that that 
we're always in those situations looking for a way to challenge yourself to say, um, if nobody's on this other game and it has the higher over-under, is that where I want to go? And granted, you know, Russell Wilson threw 23 passes. So that, like that could just as easily have just massively disappointed. But, um, but yeah, that's the other thing is, you know, it's hard for all of us, but to kind of challenge yourself to say, what's the game that other people might not be on and, and that we're, it's harder for us to get comfortable playing as well. Um, we always want to look for that discomfort when we're, when we're looking for the games that other people aren't on. Cause if we're feeling that discomfort, they're feeling it too, which means that it's even less likely to grab ownership and more likely to be valuable when it, when it hits. Um, anybody else want to raise their hand or are we good on questions for tonight? Give it a couple seconds. All right. Thanks for hanging out tonight. Um, thanks for waiting it out with us as we kind of work through the technical difficulties at the top. I'm really glad that we're doing these. Had a lot of fun tonight. I will be on Discord later in the week, so try to catch me in the channels. Um, I don't ever see my PMs, but you can catch me hanging out in there. Uh, I know that True Dawn and I were able to have some conversations last week. Ship at 33 and I were able to, to have some conversations last week. Uh, Eagles 1985. And I'm just kind of looking at some of the people in here right now. Um, and then obviously Zandamir, Hilo, different guys are on all the time throughout the week. So um, keep kind of picking our brains. Uh, it's really cool to see how intelligent the conversations have been in the Discord channel. And um, again, last thing I'll say here is just keep in mind you, you are so far ahead of the field. Even though it might feel like you're catching up and there's a lot to learn you're so far ahead of what most of your competition is doing. I'd say 90% of DFS players and 40 to 50% of the roster that you're competing against have a much lower chance of winning on every single week than you're giving yourself. So um, that's a good position to be in. Uh, I will see you on the site throughout the week. I will see you next week in Inner Circle, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.